You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, what animals reveal about our senses with Jackie Higgins and her new book, Sentient. Jackie Higgins is a television documentary director and writer who read zoology at Oxford University as a student of Richard Dawkins. She made wildlife films for a decade for the BBC as well as Channel 4, National Geographic and the Discovery Channel. And then she joined the BBC's science department, researching and writing, directing and producing programmes such as Tomorrow's World and Horizon. And Jackie is the author of Sentient, What Animals Reveal About Our Senses, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Jackie, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. Tell us, first of all, then, what the idea is behind the book. So I've always been fascinated by how um, animals, other animals, non-human animals, sense the world. But my interest in zoology mainly has been to better understand myself. So the book is about considering other creatures in the animal kingdom and how they sense the world, but them throwing light on how we sense the world, how we see the world, how we smell it, how we taste it, hear it. And so each chapter takes a different creature. And the thing with perception is that it's so much part of our every day, our every waking moment, that we take a lot for granted. So using these animals, it enabled me a little bit of distance on ourselves, myself, so that I could better understand ourselves, myself, I suppose. And let's spend some time talking about what we mean by sentience then. Yes, well, that's, that's the million dollar question. It's a, sentient is a mercurial word. It comes from the Latin sentire, to feel. And some people use it interchangeably with the word consciousness. Other people think of it as the lowest grade of consciousness. So the experience of seeing or the experience of hearing. But in this book, I do something simpler. So I basically took a leaf out of Daniel Dennett's book, who was talking about the difficulties with defining sentience, this idea that there's a special ingredient, a magic ingredient X, that distinguishes either of those forms of sentience from mere sensitivity. And because we can't pinpoint that magic ingredient, he proposes a conservative hypothesis that there is no such extra phenomenon, that sentience comes in every imaginable grade or intensity. Those were his words. 
so that's the approach I use. I use sentience in this very broad sense in terms of sensing the world. Um, so that could be the most kind of robotic sensitivity, or it could be, you know, a much more exquisitely sensitive, hyperreactive human. But taking that broader definition of sentience, it enabled me to look at the whole animal kingdom, essentially. I mean, in the book, I'm comparing us with invertebrates, with, with moths, with um, peacock mantis shrimps, um, as well as mammals like vampire bats or and all sorts of creatures. So that's the definition I chose. The idea of our senses, so, you know, historically, classically, we think of around five senses, which, you know, you could ask anyone, any man in the street, and they would be able to come up with what we think of are the fine main senses. But actually, of course, there are, turns out there are many more than Many more. And yes, we're all taught this at at nursery. I watch my kids come back from nursery and, um, you know, talk about the five senses. But it's not just it's not just kind of everyday lay context. It's also in scientific contexts that um, these five senses are kind of the predominant myth, essentially. And as I was researching our senses, um, you know, the common view within neuroscience is that there are many more than five. So not only do the five we know splinter and fracture, so touches many different senses. I mean, part of the question is a philosophical question, which is how does one define a sense? So if you're defining a sense according to the sensor within our body, an animal's body that receives the information, if you take the eye, for example, you have uh, rods, which are the sensor for light that enable us to see in the dark. But you also have in the human um, retina, typically, although as you'll learn from my book, not always, you have three colour photoreceptors. So you could say that we've got four senses of colour, or you could perhaps if you're talking about the experience, you could talk about having two senses of colour, the ability to see in the dark and the ability to see colour. Taste also, if you talk about the taste receptors on our tongue, you've got the sweet receptors, the salty receptors, the bitter and the sour receptors, and maybe also the umami receptors. So that's four or five maybe senses of taste if you're talking about categorizing a sense according to a sensor. Um, in the book, again, I, I take the experiential, I, I use taste as, as one sense. Touch is a really interesting um, sense. I mean, when I first started the research, I thought this might be the most pedestrian of the senses. But as one of my neuroscientists, Francis McGlone, describes, he, he calls touch the last sensory frontier. And our skin is full of so many different types of sensors. We have mechanoreceptors, Meisner cells, Pacinian, Ruffini, Merkel cells, which enables to with our fingertips, feel the topography of a surface, its roughness or smoothness, its shape, contours, its size. Um, but we also, within our, our skin, have sensors that detect temperature, temperatures that are too cold and too hot that, you know, are painful. So, so we also have pain. We have um, pleasure sensors. We have itch sensors. So in the book, I decided to categorise touch as two senses. So um, one which scientists refer to as discriminative touch, which enables us to feel the lay of the land, and another which scientists call affective touch, which is the more emotional side of touching, if you will, the being touched um, and the emotions that it generates. And I haven't even talked about the senses that Aristotle didn't know he had, the ones that work beneath his, you know, would have worked beneath his consciousness and the ones that work beneath our consciousness. So that's the second part of the book, with some really interesting senses that people might not necessarily have noted. 
Yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to look at some examples, so talk about some of the animals and some of the senses. And what I'd like to do is talk about a couple of the more obvious classic senses, um, those being sight and smell. Yeah. Um, and then we'll look at a couple of the weirder ones that we don't necessarily know we have and we can't feel. And so, yeah, obviously, the obvious place to start is is the peacock mantis shrimp, which has well you can you can tell us about its incredible well or at least what we thought because yes it might not <laughs> turn out might not be as incredible as we thought but what we on first glance um pun intended looks to be the most incredible eyes in the natural world absolutely i mean these eyes uh, so this this little shrimp you know you'll find it on the great barrier reef in australia for example it's beautifully um colored um, and it's got these protuberant kind of orbs that swivel, which are its eyes, which swivel in different directions independently of one another. I mean, it's a, its eyes are a completely bizarre. It looks alien. And there's a wonderful story. And, and as a, what I do throughout the book is I allow the scientists to tell their story of how they discovered things about these creatures. So Justin Marshall tells the story of, of how he realise that the shrimp eye was spectacular. I mentioned earlier that we have um, three cone cells in our retina that enables us to see the rainbows that that we see. It enables us to see all colour. But um, Marshall quickly discovered that the shrimp has very many more than three. And it basically, when he realised that the shrimp had, you know, 12 colour photoreceptors, and it has other photoreceptors as well beyond colour, it can see polarised light and... It can see different types of polarised light, like circularly polarised light. It can see UV. I mean, it is quite, it's quite staggering. But with its 12 colour photoreceptors, people, when people learnt this, they thought that, I mean, they couldn't even begin to imagine what the world of a shrimp appeared to a shrimp. Language like thermonuclear bombs of, of colour were used. And I mean, it, it's impossible to imagine. I mean, we're so fixed with our you know, our current view on the world, it's impossible to imagine what it would have seen. So through this shrimp, we learn how our colour photoreceptors work. Um, And in the chapter, we meet a lady called Gabrielle Jordan, who looked at um, the human eye and discovered that there are some women who have four colour photoreceptors who will see millions of colours more than most of us. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's the story of the shrimp and colour sight. And you look also at you know how we can study our sight through, and this this is something that you know crops up a lot through the book. Studying our understanding of our senses is developed by studying people whose you know senses are not working properly or are like affected in a certain way. And you talk in this book about um, a particular island in the South Pacific where colour blindness is endemic. Yes, complete colour blindness. So achromatopsia. So no cones are working. So they see a large proportion of the population of Pingalap, this island, um, see the world in black and white. And this is a theme I talk about people either with an excess, like the people who Gabrielle Jordan w- was studying, or missing something. So uh, the achromatopes who have never seen colour. I think the interesting, so, so Oliver Sacks went off to Pingalap. He was fascinated by this, I think, because he'd had migraines as a child. And at a certain points, his migraine had drained his world of colour. So he'd lost colour sight through these migraines. And he was really fascinated by this condition. And he had also met 
a painter uh, called Jonathan I, who had had a car accident and um, had lost his sense of colour. Jonathan I described to Sachs that his world was dirty and impure. He talked about people's flesh now looking rat-coloured or the world being moulded in lead. I mean, he had lost something. Um, But what was interesting is that um, Sachs travelled to Pingalap with a scientist called Norby, who was born an achromatope, who was born without the ability to see colour. And when asked about what it meant for him, he very clearly said that, um, my world is, I don't view it as dirty or or not pure. I don't view it as, I, I don't think I, I'm missing anything. And Sachs talks about um, uh, Nordby's black and white photography. And he asks the question, which I thought was fascinating, which is maybe colour blinds us to much of what the world offers. So, so I do use this idea of, I, I talk about this idea of excess and senses or lacking senses. And we make assumptions um, quite often when someone senses the world in the way that we don't, that somehow they're missing out on something, which sometimes they are. But I suppose I'm trying to suggest we don't make assumptions. Well, one of the assumptions we obviously made in this chapter is this idea that, you know, we looked at the, the peacock mantis shrimp, saw that it had 12 color receptors rather than three and obviously thought that would make its its eyesight insanely good as you said a thermonuclear explosion of of color (laughs) and of course you know that's almost like a this sort of fallacy that evolution is working towards some sort of like ultimate end when actually it may well be the case that it's like massively over-engineered something that works you know not necessarily that dissimilar to our own eyesight Yes, but dissimilar in that these, so these 12 photos, so when Justin Marshall decided to figure out, he'd been looking at the sensors and uh, making an assumption about what the site might be from how many sensors it had. Um, But when they actually, the scientists started to test what the shrimp could actually see, they realised that their colour vision was much worse than ours. And so it's using these 12 photoreceptors in a very different way. I mean, the way that we use our three color photoreceptors, we compare the input um, of these color of, you know, these three inputs coming in. And that enables us to calculate this extraordinary rainbow. And so the shrimp's not doing that. Um, It's seeing the world in a very different way with more kit, but less results. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jackie Higgins and we're talking about her new book, Sentient, What Animals Reveal About Our Senses. And Jackie, let's move on to, to smell, the sense of smell. And mm. in the book, you look at the bloodhound particularly, but, you know, dogs and and this idea that we've had for a while that, you know, dogs have, again, a sense of smell that's exponentially better than our own. It's often occurred to me that to have much better smell in that sort of way would be a bad thing because that things that smelt bad would smell oh. like exponentially worse as well. But uh, yes. yeah, the whole world would just stink terribly <laughs> of things. But I guess that's not actually how it works. That's how it works with taste, by the way. I think people who are super tasters actually have problems eating their food. But no, so smell, yes, we've long, we've hailed the doggy nose as the kind of the best nose in the animal kingdom. But when... um what scientists have been looking at the human nose and comparing it to the dog nose and and we put up quite a good show so I think the myth started I I look back well I don't but a but a scientist called John McGann actually looked back to see when this myth had started Um, and he uh, essentially says that it started with Paul Broca who was a French surgeon who worked in the 19th century by the time he died in the 1880s he collected something like 400 brains. So this chap was fascinated by the brain. And he saw that our olfactory bulb is proportionately smaller than the other mammals he was looking at. And so he made this broad sweeping statement that the olfactory bulb and our sense of smell had made way for frontal lobes and our sense of free will. And this idea was developed by Sigmund Freud, who argued that the sublimation of the sense of smell is a factor of civilization and the only people who relished smell were children, perverts and neurotics. So this, this idea of, we, they call us micro, um, we have microsmatty, this idea that our nose is, is not up for much, for much at all, you know, has basically started here. But scientists today have, re, have re-looked at the evidence and have come up with a radically different um, conclusion. So McGann, for example, looked at the olfactory bulb and argued that in terms of absolute size, we still rank rather well. Um, but also other scientists have looked at, um, have studied behaviour and, you know, done behavioural tests to pit our nose against the bloodhounds and our smell sensitivity is rather good. 
There was a wonderful study done by um, the Rockefeller University, it's called the, the Rockefeller University Smell Study, and a chap called Andreas Keller put all sorts of mixes of scents in a test tube and asked people to discriminate between how many scents they could detect in a mix. And um, using some clever statistics, basically came to the conclusion that we could smell over a trillion different scents. So our range is staggering too. I mean, if you compare it to audible tones, you know, scientists might say we hear, we can distinguish between hundreds of thousands of audible tones. And other scientists might say that we can distinguish between a million or more colours. But um, Keller and his team said we can distinguish between a trillion different scents. So, so yes, our, our nose is really rather brilliant. <laughs> well, I suggested at the beginning of this section that to smell a lot better might be, might be a terrible thing. But the opposite is the truth. To think about not smelling at all seems to be, you know, the um, anosmia, which is some people yes. very recently that have had COVID have had, a, you know, a short period of, of experience in there seems, a, you know, a, a truly terrible affliction. So I, this, it happened to me actually in January, I caught mm. COVID and I lost my sense of, I lost my sense of smell. What's not really known about smell, picking things apart, is what most of what we think of as taste is smell. I mean, more particularly scientists call flavour, which is the mix of taste and smell, it's predominantly smell. So as you're, and as I was eating, I, you know, I lost, I couldn't taste, or I couldn't taste chocolate, my favourite thing in the world. It just tasted like putty. If anything, it, I just had this mouthfeel of slip slidiness in my mouth with kind of a vague sweetness. But all that, those wonderful aromas that normally, you know, my teeth will chew into a piece of chocolate and these lovely aromas will waft up the back of my, to the back of my throat and up towards my nose. It's called the retronasal passage. And those, what's interesting is those smells are registered in our nose, but our brain hoodwinks us into thinking that they're tasted on our tongue. So, so yes, smell, a loss of smell is um, not only do you, you know, not enjoy that, I don't know, the smell of a rose, but you also don't enjoy your food. You know, people often lose weight because they lose all interest in food or they put on weight because they're trying to eat for some form of satisfaction and they're not getting it. And it, it's very much correlated with depression, a, a loss of smell. It's um, again, this theme again running through the book, this idea that often you don't appreciate these senses until you've lost them. So we're going to look at a couple of a couple of senses that we don't necessarily recognise as senses or are not necessarily aware of. And the first one I wanted to talk about was um, our sense of balance, literally how we are able to stand up and move about without falling. And to do this, you look at the uh, the cheetah, the most incredible of cats. Yes. Which you think, so the cheetah, we all think, we all hail and laud the cheetah for being you know, the fastest creature on legs. But what we forget is the reason, I mean, if ever you watch a cheetah chasing a gazelle, what you see is not a flat out race. You see the gazelle doing this smart evolutionary tactic of jinking, you know, bouncing from side to side to try and avoid the cheetah. So the cheetah has to turn on a sixpence at high speeds. And so um, Camille Groe was studying the cheetah and became fascinated by its sense of balance. So she, our sense of balance, the organ, our sensor, um, where we sense balance is in our inner ear, not far from the cochlea where we hear. And so she looked at the cheetah's bony labyrinth 
and could see that in comparison to all other cats, it was markedly different, much bigger, and certain canals were emphasized. And this enables the cheetah incredible sensitivity when it is spinning on a sixpence. And when and Camille said that I started, she started to watch. Um, these high speed chases and she just was before she'd been fascinated by its kind of liquid beauty then she became fascinated by the fact that the head is like a, 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 a steady camera you know these devices that are kind of on gyros that basically they don't move that the head is the same distance above the ground and you've got this scooby-doo action of the cheetah's body racing behind the head but the head is locked in position and that enables the cheetah to be like a gazelle seeking missile. The cheetah's eyes are locked on the gazelle. So yeah, it makes it deadly. And let's talk about this sense of balance in ourselves. The vestibular system. Yes. Um, So this is, so what's interesting is the very same canals that, that were enlarged in the cheetah. A similar enlargement had happened at some point in someone else's evolutionary history, our history. So um, Fred Spohr um, became well known for looking at the vestibular system of hominids, ancient hominids, and essentially um, studied different hominids and realised that the moment that we stood upright, it um, this enlargement, the very same canal enlargement that we'd seen in the cheetah happened in us. And this enlargement enables us to stand tall and walk. Um, Brian Day, this other wonderful scientist who I talked to, who studies human motion, describes walking as an extraordinary feat of balance. Every time we kind of tip forward onto our foot that's hovering in the air and it lands, that's a uh, an extraordinary feat of balance that we are conducting without thought. And our balance system is essentially informing our our vestibular system, vestibular organ, is informing our brain all the time of where our body is and whether we're balanced or not. Um, And we we couldn't walk without it, or we can walk. There's a chat with um, that I also discuss, who's a patient of Oliver Sachs, who can walk, but he's walking around. It's it's misfire. It's not working properly, and he's walking around like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating story, and he has no idea that he's doing it until he's shown a video of himself. Yes, and then he realizes, and then he then understands why his friends have called him the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And what's wonderful, I think, about that particular story is that Sachs, then, in because of the neuroplasticity of our brain, um, the fact that our brains are constantly changing according to the information that, that we're giving them. Uh, this chap, um, Sachs's patient, built himself a, a pair of spectacles with a little weight hanging from the bridge of his nose. And so as he walked about his day to day, he could see when the the pendulum swung to a side, he realized that he was walking at a tilt. So he would look at that pendulum and then right himself. And by doing this over and over and over again, he retrained his brain to rebalance himself. So in that chapter, I talk about both the organ in the ear and the brain and um combined that you know there's a big debate with these you know what's the sensory organ and the brain essentially it's it's this is not my quote it's Paul Baccarita's quote but he talks about the brain being the key sensory organ of the body and all these little sensors in our extremities are 
um, collecting information from the world and feeding it to the brain. And the brain combines everything um, it, with our multisensory perception to sense the world. To finish off then, we're just going to talk about one more animal. And this is one where to actually discuss where the line between the, um, the senses and the brain and the body ends is difficult. And I'm talking about the octopus. The octopus, um, yes. And you talk here about another one of those, well, both very strange and actually this is a sense that, you know, most people would not know of, but also probably wouldn't be able to pronounce. I'm talking about proprioception. Yeah. Um, which is, well, yeah, tell us what this is. So Neil, if you close your eyes right now, um, you've got a sense of where your body is. And you've, the sense is so, um, so accurate that with your eyes closed, you can bring your finger to your nose tip. And this is, uh, literally this is just a test. That. You've just done that. And this is a test that policemen use if they've, if they've <laughs> caught you speeding late at night because um, proprioception quickly gets addled by alcohol. So if you're, if you're stabbing yourself in the eye, then, you've, um, then essentially it means you've had a drink because your proprioception's no longer firing on all cylinders. So, yes, it's a sense that we are incredibly reliant on and none of us realise how reliant. And I met Ian Waterman, um, whose story is ex- extraordinary. Yeah, it um, certainly is. When he was 19 years old, he got a nasty viral infection. He started to feel quite unwell. I think he was pushing the lawnmower across. He, he basically was at work. He was working as a butcher's assistant and he felt ill. And his boss said, go home. And rather than go to bed, he decided to mow the lawn. This is classic Ian. And he couldn't keep up with a lawnmower. He went to bed. He had these fever dreams that he was floating above the bed Um, His body felt rather odd. He woke up in the middle of the night. There was a hand on his face and the hand was his. And he ended up in hospital. And when he kind of came to, you know, out of the fevers, he had lost all sense of his body. So if he closed his eyes, like I just asked you to do, he had no idea where any part of his body was. So it's not like a numbness, like an anaesthetic numbness. He had lost his body. I mean, the doctors had no idea what to do with him. And he essentially retaught himself how to move and walk again. He was sent home and he thought, rather than lie on the bed, I've just got to sort this out. Because the whole point of this sense is not just, not, it doesn't just enable us to feel our body. It enables us to control our body. So, for example, his arm, it, he hadn't lost motion. He told me this extraordinary thing. He'd be in the doctors. And if he wasn't looking, his arm just might kind of start, start moving off to the side and equally likely go up someone's nose, he said. The moment he realised that he, the only way that he could take control of his body was to look at his body and use his eyes and his sense of sight to basically reclaim possession of his body. And he essentially did the most extraordinary study of human movement that's possibly ever been done because he took every single motion that he had to get his head around and he broke it down into its component parts and then he built it back up. And with attention and bloody mindedness and strong will, he basically started to command his body to move using his eyes. And he does this today and he can walk and he can move around. But if he loses sight of what he's doing, if the lights go out, if he's momentarily blinded by a firework, you know, that blackness you get just after a firework, if he sneezes, he will crumple like a ragdoll because he has lost 
because he's lost proprioception, he's lost that quick, that connection he's got with his vision to his, his body, he will fall. So he talks about his every day of just getting up in the morning and going about and having a regular day as a daily marathon. The focus and the attention that he has to bring to bear on a simple day is a marathon. And his marathon is what we do every day without even thinking about it. Well, we've gone straight to this, you know, incredible story of of Ian Waterman there. And and let's finish off talking about how this relates to the relation of this sense to the octopus, which is the animal that the uh, the chapter is about. So so I told Ian of all humanity, he has most in common with the octopus, (laughs) which he loves. (laughs) Um, Call me Inky, he says. Um, and Inky is the character that opens opens the chapter and, and it, it enables me to talk about these marvellous creatures. You know, he's, Inky es- essentially escaped. He's a New Zealand common octopus who escaped from his aquarium. And, and octopuses, we, we, we've heard all sorts of tales of their intelligence, their ability to solve mazes, to recognise faces. And we, we've seen, or if we haven't seen, please see my octopus teacher, the Netflix film. But I decided to look at the octopus with regard to its sense of proprioception, because it's fascinating. Essentially, very little proprioception information that the arms, its eight, its eight arms are collecting, very little of that information reaches the brain. So these arms are essentially divorced from the brain. They're autonomous. They're doing their own thing. And so a little bit like Ian Um, If an octopus is, you know, regular day on the reef for an octopus, it might be watching a fish. But meanwhile, its arm will be doing something that its um, head is unaware of. So its arms, its arms essentially can do their own thing. And again, like Ian, um, vision, it uses vision to unify itself. So when it starts to, if it wants to do a, if it wants to swim off and, and, basically unify itself and have some cohesive movement, it's doing so with its eyes. So it's a fascinating creature. It makes us rethink, I mean, it makes us, you mentioned the brain-body division. It makes us rethink whether we should have a division between the brain and, uh, you know, we often talk about the brain-body division, but as my um, octopus scientist, Benny Hockner says, and he's been studying these creatures because he wants to build the holy grail of um, robots, which is to build a, a soft-bodied robot. And he's looking at the octopus and its proprioception, its movement to enable him to do that. He talks of embodied intelligence and, you know, argues that the brain is part of the body. And with the octopus, a third of its half billion neurons are in its brain. But the rest of the, the, two, the other two thirds are all in its arms. Octopus are very far removed from us. You know, it's a mollusk. It's physiologically more like an oyster than a trout, let alone a mammal. So it's so far removed from us on our family tree, but it's another mind. So I've been talking to Jackie Higgins. We've been talking about her new book, Sentient, What Animals Reveal About Our Senses, which is out in the UK from Picador. Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Not at all, Neil. It was great fun. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 